Welcome to Explaining Albania with me, Alice Taylor. In this episode, I'm interviewing Elsa Hustad, who is the Swedish ambassador to Tirana. We will be discussing sustainability, her youth growing up in the Soviet Union, feminism, food, and all things Albania. Good afternoon, Elsa. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of Explaining Albania. It's wonderful to have you here, Alice, mm-hmm. in the Swedish residence. Welcome. I feel very honoured. Thank you very <laughs> much. Um, I wanted to start off by talking a bit about yourself. So, uh, based on conversations we've had before, you've had what sounds like quite an extraordinary life. Um, and I'd like to understand a bit more about your childhood. You grew up in the Soviet Union, correct? Yes. Um, and I wondered if you could just tell me a bit about your early years and how that sort of shaped you. I'd love to do that. Um, well, I think what shaped me most perhaps was that I actually grew up on my own with my mother. She was a foreign correspondent and it was me and her, although we had, I had friends, we had a family of course around us, but it was still me and her, so that shaped me. And then, yes, she took me to Soviet Union because she was the first Swedish female foreign correspondent to work in the Soviet Union. And she just brought me along and I grew up there with her. And uh, it formed me, so I have a passion for for Russia, for mm-hmm. the language, for my friends there, and a sort of deep understanding also of communist countries. And uh, some sort of activism started in me when I grew up. Growing up in the in the Soviet Union, which was quite a, I'm not quite sure what the right word is, a very different environment to how I imagine Sweden is. How did you deal with that? What sort of, was it oppressive in any way for you? Or did you learn to sort of um, synchronize with the way things were there? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think first I was, I was small. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. I, it started when I was four years old and I left when I was nine. And then I came back to study and to, to do my university there. But, uh, but, but of course I was, um, uh, I was very much uh, exposed to propaganda, mm-hmm. uh, but you know when you're small you don't really question that. But of course we had a lot of communist feasts and I was reciting communist poetry and we were out demonstrating on the 1st of May and we had school uniform and we had Lenin all over and, and I would say that my childhood was 100% um, uh, indoctrinated indoctrinated (laughs) by the soviet communist party because that's Mm -hmm. how it was and my mother was i would say was quite clever of her she decided to put me in an ordinary soviet kindergarten ordinary school so what i remember is this i mean this was like everywhere we started by memorizing the the soviet hymn and then we were writing things like moscow is the most beautiful city on earth and you know and and then i woke up because i was swedish and i was thinking no mm-hmm. but stockholm is also beautiful <laughs> but then maybe i understood sort of the power of propaganda mm-hmm. but it also made me a bit critical you know why do they think that soviet union is the best but what about sweden so so i also understood this big machinery but of course i was also very Mm, uh, sort of open for it and I was you know part of it um, and then oppressive I mean school system was quite harsh uh, it was and uh, uh, and a bit authoritarian and that mm-hmm. scared me uh, but on the other hand I was surrounded with the 
other kind of people because my mother was very much looking for the intellectual, the, the writers, the poets, the musicians. So, so it was a lot of uh, um, going with her and sitting in smoky Soviet flats <laughs> while sort of this uh, um, opposition poets were talking about things they couldn't really wow. talk about. So, so it was these two sides of my childhood, one mm -hmm. in the official system and one uh, hanging out with my mom. And um, and I think that was extremely just educating, you mm -hmm. know, just th this is how it was. And then, of course, uh, other signs of oppression that my school friends were not allowed into our flat, that someone was uh, listening to our phone. My mother mm. had to go out and make her phone calls because she was all the time uh, followed by uh, secret police, uh, KGB. But on the other hand, that made me brave because later yes. on when I was working with human rights in Belarus and I was exposed to the same, I thought that this is how it is. You know, if you yes. work in an authoritarian country, you are followed by the security yes. police. So I suppose being immersed in that sort of environment from a very early age prepared you very well for going to countries which maybe had influences from that sort of regime. Can you tell me a bit about Belarus? Yeah. Obviously it's been in the headlines a lot recently. Yeah, exactly. Now Belarus was of course uh, sort of a fantastic experience. I was working with human rights. This was mm -hmm. a quite long time ago now. It's 1997, so two years in of Lukashenko's uh, time as a president. And I was working for United Nations with mm -hmm. human rights, democracy. And um, well, it was a bit difficult and we were challenging uh, government and ministries and uh, but I, but I, I could really use all the skills that I had from Russia and being a bit brave I was you know mm -hmm. a bit cocky and uh, and also uh, yeah but uh, but I mean we tried to do a human rights film festival it was closed down oh, I tried to do media support with um, uh, independent media and government media that was closed down so of course it was a lot of uh, barriers uh, oh, yeah. but that's how it was and, and you learn how to navigate and try to do things and and uh, and, and that was a very good experience and um, a lot of fantastic people also in the middle of Europe I mean it's like uh, uh, 40 minutes from Lithuanian border mm -hmm. it's like two hours from Stockholm they are really also in in Europe and uh, it's a lot closer than yeah. you imagine when, exactly. you know, when I think of Belarus I yeah. think of it being really far away exactly but, but it's, it's not it's yes. not so you have like Europeans there and it's it's unbelievable how this country could be locked in in communism and surrounded by European Union countries mm -hmm. like Poland and mm -hmm. the, the Baltics and, uh, and then Ukraine on the other side it's quite uh, unbelievable Mm. Now you said you were working in human rights, how did you end up working in human rights? Was it a conscious choice or something you fell into? Well, I think it was um, as a mixture of my personality being a bit um, activistic, sort mm -hmm. of, I, I don't know, I like to oppose or to, 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 to stand up for things and then um, a lot of empathy sounds, I don't know, but, but, but I, I felt enormously for people who were oppressed. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, you know, to listen to them and to take part of their stories and, uh, and that uh, gave me energy also mm -hmm. to, to fight. And perhaps it's, um, it's a combination of growing up in Sweden in a very liberal time. I mean, I also grew up in Sweden in the 70s. Mm -hmm. 
and that was an extremely liberal time and it was sort of gender equal and girls and boys looked the same and I had my mother who was really like a hippie generation and we didn't consume I mean that was sort of the that's, you know, yeah I mean that was in the 70s and that's what the rest of Europe should be striving for 40 50 exactly. years later you exactly. know you exactly. were years ahead yeah 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 so I think combination of that quite very liberal upbringing and uh, also I've been exposed to this very strict and authoritarian uh, country or Soviet Union. I think maybe that uh, would shape me. Mm -hmm. That inspired you. So apart from Belarus, where else did you work throughout your career in human rights? Yeah, and then I worked uh, in Vietnam, which is also a communist country with human rights. And, uh, and there I understood that they they had much harder time actually mm -hmm. they did not have opposition it was much more oppressive and i was surprised because that was not the picture i had of mm -hmm. vietnam when i was going there because you see it as a sort of a tourist country opening up but in fact they did not have any political transition they had a lot of um, economical transition financial and they they you have an enormous inflow of tourism but i felt that people were naive mm -hmm. they were coming there and they did not realize what a communist country vietnam was mm -hmm. at that time and i tried to look for oppositions or and, and and it was almost impossible. They were terrified. They did yes. not have an active opposition. And when I was looking for them, they were terrified. I found this uh, uh, cyber, this the, the, the democracy activist. He was in house arrest. He was terrified. He was meeting me. He opened up uh, his home where he was in house arrest. But he was so scared. And then I could compare that to Belarus, where you mm -hmm. had so much more brave, so many more brave people, so many more openly in opposition. That it was like night and day, mm -hmm. and and that was an eye opener for me. Mm -hmm. And also how my own government, Sweden, we were much more aware of the authoritarian regime in Belarus than we were about Vietnam. Mm -hmm. We were too soft on Vietnam. So I was really a troublemaker there. I really tried, <laughs> tried to do something. Um, yeah, so Vietnam was an eye opener. So it's all about expectations, of course. And then I worked in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, and when they sort of became harder and harder, I mean, to follow Russia is also an interesting journey because it was so liberal in the 90s. They were really opening up with Yeltsin and and everyone was so much uh, hoping for for this new democratic wave and then suddenly putin sort of closed it mm -hmm. they they went back to nationalism to to values of the church family against lgbti movement and then again we had to fight for human rights mm -hmm. And the fight goes on in Russia. And the fight goes on, <laughs> and the fight goes on. I don't know much about the yeah. current situation in Vietnam. No, I don't, you know, no, I mean, it's, um, it's still, it's, it's still not good, mm -hmm. but step by step and slowly. But I think you get fooled and you get sort of uh, blurred, your sight gets blurred when mm. you, when you see all the economic development, the same as yes. with China. And, yes. and, and it fools you. Mm -hmm. um, so. Obviously, you were pursuing this career in human rights and in these other countries. Were you aware of what was going on in Albania at the, during these times? 
the fall of communism in the 90s, was it something on your radar at all? Uh, well, yes, it was because I was following the Western Balkans and of mm -hmm. course I was following the whole of uh, Eastern Europe, including the Balkans and everything that happened in, in our world. Uh, but I was not following Albania in details mm -hmm. since I was not working with Albania at that time. Yes, But of course, Western Balkans and, and the impact in the 90s had and then came the war, uh, which did not affect Albania in the same way mm -hmm. as the other Western Western Balkan countries, but yes, I was, I was following it, but from a little distance. I mean, it really, obviously I knew what had happened, I was youngish when, when communism ended, but I knew, I was aware that Albania had been a communist dictatorship, but it was only in the last year or so where I started reading books from people who lived through that time and historical accounts where I realised sort of just how brutal it was. Mm. You know, when I came to Albania, I was like, oh, this is a beautiful country, you know, mm. yes, it has problems, but I didn't really understand how how serious things had been before. Um, okay, moving on to your work in Albania. So you are the ambassador of Sweden to Albania. Um, you've been here for a year, I believe, yeah. yes? Um, now, while you've been here, you've been very vocal um, about LGBT rights, which is fantastic because we need it. When you came to Albania and started talking about LGBT, what were your expectations of, of sort of the situation, how did you perceive the situation, what was the reality? Give me an overview of yeah. how you see the situation here at the moment. You know, when you come to a country, and with my background working with human rights democracy, uh, you immediately sense in a country, uh, or, or I wanted to try, where, where does the red line go? Mm -hmm. Because that gives you a, a sort of a, a feeling of where are we on human rights. And I was surprised that Albania is open. It, Albania is so much more open country than some of the neighboring countries mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe. And, and of course LGBTI uh, people are victims of, of hatred and, uh, and hate crimes. But if you compare it to other countries in Europe, in Eastern Europe, Albania is actually an open country. And, mm -hmm. and you can sense this immediately on the reactions and also how the government talk. I, I joined the Dyke Parade quite early here, mm -hmm. I don't know, a year ago. And, uh, and you know, it was police around and they were actually uh, protecting the demonstration. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my, my friends who work in the LGBTI movement and I asked, do you feel protected by the police? And they said, yes. I mean, it was has not always been like this. And I don't want to sound naive, but you also, I think it's also important to uh, to recognize achievements that are made. Mm -hmm. And in Albania, liberal values are, um, are really sort of highly valued. People are liberal, democratic, uh, and, and I think actually you had this before the, the, the communist dictatorship. I yes. think there is a sense of liberalism, individualism, and it was here before, and you can feel that. Well, actually, I was reading, and people will probably find this very controversial, some of them, I was reading about history in the north of Albania, and prior to communism, it was socially acceptable for shepherds who would go off into the mountains to keep each other warm at night, shall mm -hmm. we say. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was acceptable for them mm -hmm. to have homosexual relationships when they were away from the house, mm -hmm. when they were off in the mountains for sort of weeks or months at a time, that mm -hmm. was fine. Mm -hmm. And someone actually posted a picture the other day that really made me smile of the partisans um, in Tirana, and there were two partisans who were kissing, mm -hmm. two male partisans, mm -hmm. and then I mean, it just goes, to, I mean, you wouldn't get that now, you know, and obviously during communism it, it was illegal, but 
I, it made me think, yes, things weren't always like, yeah. like yeah. this and yeah. that. Oh, and you know, there are so many signs because in Albania also it's a, it's a quite a secular society. I mean, yes. you, have a, you have religions living in harmony uh, and, and that is also very, very important. And, the, and then you're just secular. And, mm. and that is also a good thing for human rights because yes. you don't have a church who can be oppressive and uh, you have strong family values. Yes. You have that, but, but still, and I mean, I'm sure people will be provoked and say that and I don't know, but I, 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 I have the ability to compare with so many countries mm-hmm. in both Latin America, Eastern Europe uh, and Southeast Asia, and you immediately notice when things are mm-hmm. sensitive. And many of the human rights are not sensitive mm. here. They're just not. That was interesting, actually, because that's what I thought before when you said about the family values. When I write about LGBT, I quite often get people commenting. And the number one sort of um, issue they seem to have with the LGBT community is, no, it goes against the family unit. It goes against it goes against the idea, they think it goes against the idea of what they have. The, the man is the head of the family, the woman, the children. That's the purpose of... Mm sort of relationships, you know? So that was quite that was quite interesting that you'd sort of noticed that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it, it does surprise me. I think things are getting better, but it surprises me sometimes. I will mention something about LGBT to an Albanian friend. No, no, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I'm like, but why? Mm-hmm. Quite often they don't really, mm-hmm. they don't really know. Uh, but no, I think things are getting better and I've seen people that I know coming out recently mm-hmm. as well, which mm-hmm. is um, quite encouraging. So, mm-hmm. And it's good that you've said it fares a lot better than other yeah. countries yeah. as well. <laughs> and you also have a great LGBTI community here. Yes. They are strong and they are brave and mm-hmm. of course they have challenges. And I mean, we, we support not as much as I would like to, but, but morally support an LGBTI shelter and they mm-hmm. have... Uh, you know, victims who, who, who need to have this shelter so of course uh, it's it's not uh, an easy uh, way to to come out or to be openly homosexual but but you have a strong community yes they are allowed to work they are allowed to talk about these things I mean in Russia we shouldn't compare Albania to Russia but it's, no. uh, but, but but it's a big country and mm-hmm. and they uh, and, and and it's not even allowed. Yes. And, and in other countries, it's much more sensitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so that makes me actually optimistic yes. and quite happy that's and quite good. in a good mood that I could come here and join the Dyke Parade. Yes, that so that's great. I love that. <laughs> yes, I've been to the to the parade every year except um, when I was pregnant, and I I do enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so the next topic I want to talk about is something that we both. Um, are quite passionate about, which is the environment and sustainability. Now, Albania has problems with pollution. We know that. There were some recent statistics that came out that it's one of the worst in Europe in terms of air pollution. Uh, Plastic pollution going into the Mediterranean, it's the fourth worst in Europe as well. And there's an issue with recycling. Sweden appears to have got things pretty under control. What can we learn from how we do things in Sweden and the attitudes the Swedish government have towards environment and sustainability? Yeah, uh, well, and this is an area area where I think actually Albania has a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, uh, Sweden is now extremely good at recycling. Mm -hmm. But we were not always good at recycling. In the 60s we were also dumping waste and, and uh, having them in landfills like they have here in Albania. But then we decided to invest in a system of recycling and this is what Albania needs to do. Mm -hmm. The plastic pollution is, is terrible and Albania needs to do this for for many reasons, but one reason is of course also for becoming an EU member. Uh, you need to get all your environmental standards in shape and, and to get your waste management sorted out. Mm -hmm. And second, which is the future of Albania, is to become the tourist country that Albania mm -hmm. wants to and, and has the potential to be. And the waste that I see every day when I travel around, when I walk around, is terrible. And people talk about you, we must educate people, that is true, but the Albanian government must invest in a system mm -hmm. and this costs money, but this is the only way forward. There yes. is no, you cannot bypass this because you cannot put your waste in landfills. Um, so it's just about recycling mm -hmm. and, and, and that system, um, Sweden is supporting Albania in that, Germany is, uh, Switzerland, other countries are. Um, but you need to invest a lot, mm -hmm. but it's a good investment because yes. it also makes the economy go around because then you have companies who can benefit from that and I mean it's a whole industry so, yes. so you do invest but you also get revenues. Yes. So that's the only way. Sweden is recycling 98% wow. of uh, our waste. That's great. Uh, Albania is recycling, I heard 17, but I doubt it's it. less. I think it's less. Yes, it I is. think it's less. Uh, but, but that's like the only way forward. Mm. It's it's sad, you know, I see people organising cleanups at yeah. beaches and rivers and they separate everything yeah. and then I think it's all just going to go into yeah. landfill. Yeah, that's like nothing. Yeah, I mean, no, no, exactly. It's such a shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm. uh, cleaning up is really, people talk about fake activism and I don't like that because it is activism and it's really genuine. People mm. really want to do something. But unless you have a system, it's a yes. little bit waste of uh, time. It can be a wake-up call. Yeah. It can be, you know, people get engaged. But you need to have a system. This this thing, fake activism about cleanups. When I first came here, they were very rare, and my friends started doing them. We joined forces, and now they're becoming really popular. And I think, well, if that's what you call fake activism, you know, encouraging more and more people to start their own initiatives, then bring it on. Exactly. You know, exactly. And we should actually embrace all of kind course. of activism. And there's no such word. And actually, how terrible yeah. that I even said that. I hated that word. And there's no <laughs> such things. And I got so upset because someone called uh, me a fake activist. So maybe that's why I needed to sort of use this yeah. word to get it out of it's my system. It's a terrible it's word. It's a terrible it's word. Terrible. Let's kill it. It's Alice, uh, you and me, we are yes. killing this word now. It does it's not exist. It's a complete exist. contradiction yeah, as exactly. well. Exactly. Well, no, we hate this yeah. word. Because Bound. in fact, exactly, it's bound and it's dead. <laughs> Because in fact, you're absolutely right. The more people you have who clean up is fantastic because one day you will have a system and yes. then you need to have this kind of activities and to have a mindset. And we had the same in Sweden. It was, it was a big movement called uh, Keep Sweden Tidy. And schools and people, in the same way as people do mm -hmm. here, went out cleaning and it was super important. So mm. it does have a place. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. no more fake activism. No, no, no exactly. Um, now you are very into sustainability, sustainable fashion, green living, etc. Yeah. Tell me a few things that you do, sort of, or changes you've made in your life in yeah. the last 10 years yeah. that might inspire other people. Yeah, this is super important also because, uh, I mean, we are 
we really need to change our our way of living our behavior and uh, i mean for me i love clothes i really do i, I really think it's interesting it's aesthetic and, and i love to promote swedish fashion but we have to change our way of thinking around this and this is no new things but we have to buy second hand we have to buy less if we buy which is really my weakness i love to buy clothes i need to think about what i'm buying yes so what i've changed is i really look into materials is it recycled materials i just bought a lovely pink dress uh, made by old plastic bottles it's lovely. super nice and it's really lovely i'll show you Alice. Yeah. And, uh, and and you have to do that you have to yeah. change your way of do you know what? it's more fun yeah it's also more fun i go yeah. around to the embassy there are yeah. a number of second hand shops and i bought the coat i have with me today yeah. is the 60 percent mohair yeah i think it's older than me yeah. and i paid 10 euros exactly. for it exactly and it's so amazing she, i mean my children they are what 20 24 they buy second hand i mean mm -hmm. it's a fashion but it's a lifestyle so and and uh, so it's about material and i mean the big brands like h&m like zara mm h&m &hmm. &hmm, actually they, they invest a lot in research yes. because they understand that that they are are the big polluters and they need to change mm -hmm. so they invest a lot of money in research to change and to find new materials and and i think that's that's good and that's our future so so that's what i have changed and then of course it's about food and um and there's no need to eat as much uh, meat as we mm -hmm. do but of course uh, i mean some meat is i'd say that in albania you're no right. i know i know but i am i am and then there's no need to import so much food we should buy local yes. food i mean it, it, it's not new but but it's uh, but it's a little bit new here in Albania. I must mm -hmm. admit, when I start to talk about um, sustainable produced food and buy local, and uh, I mean Albanians get get uh, proud because it's their food, mm -hmm. but I don't think that the thought about uh, also making an environmental impact by that has sort mm -hmm. of occurred. And, uh, and and when I was preparing for this sustainable fashion event, going back to the sustainable fashion, I was talking to the university here in Tirana, who the textile university, and for them this was new because I started to talk about fabrics and are you aware and do you talk with your students and they said no. Wow. And and that was wow. And then my wow. colleague said, which was I think also going back to your earlier question, she said, you know. In Albania, we are aware about LGBT rights, we are aware about human rights, but sustainable fashion, textile, mm -hmm. material, uh, sustainability in what you buy, that is new for us. Yes. And then I understood that this is actually mm -hmm. the revolution. Yes. And finally, Albania wants to become EU member country. You you have to start thinking about this. Yes. From what I understood, um, because during communism there was no access to sort of Western modern fabric or designer brands or anything or anything like that. Once communism came down, it's become very, you know, people really aspire to wear the brands, to yeah. get things from Italy, from yeah. Germany, you know, so it becomes an issue promoting wearing second hand or smaller brand sustainability because people attach so much status to yeah. these sort of, but I think we'll get there eventually. We will, we will. And it's like the, it's, it's sort of the, the, the cycle of development that, mm -hmm. that first you come out from this deprived childhood that you had, nothing to buy, communist country, mm -hmm. and then you want all this, as you say, this Western uh, clothes. But then you realize that no, we have to yes. uh, take responsibility of our globe. And, and then the other things, 
or back in fashion you know bicycles mm. uh, second hand clothes it will come yes mm. and yes second hand clothes shopping is so much more fun yeah you know you you go out and you find something really wonderful and it doesn't cost much and you spend yeah. an hour looking for it yeah. it's way more exciting than going to a chain shop yeah. and yeah exactly just looking through yeah. the racks so yeah. Um, media freedom, something that's very close to my heart and your mother was a journalist, so I think it's quite important to you as well. Um, what does media freedom mean to you? Oh, that's a very good question. Well, of course, it means that uh, uh, you, you can be free in writing uh, what is correct and good journalism. It has moved from, uh, from just being a diversity and pluralism, mm -hmm. ensuring that you have different voices. Like when I was working in Belarus or in Russia, it was very much about having something that was not the government's voice or the, the dictator voice, like in the case of Belarus. But it has moved and shifted and now it's more about qualitative journalism mm -hmm. and it's not only here in Albania, it's around the world and it's also the, the entry of social media so everyone can be a journalist and I think that that has uh, uh, decreased the, the values of, of good qualitative journalism. Mm -hmm. You have to be so and everything goes quicker also faster, mm -hmm. goes faster. You have to be so cautious about quality, checking your facts, uh, objectivity, all that. So now it is also about quality. Mm -hmm. It's not only about pluralism. Yes. In the beginning it was so much about pluralism, but now it's actually about quality. I find, you know, journalism was always something that was very respected as a career. But now I see from people in public, you know, a disdain for journalism or for the media. The media yeah. is like the big bad guy, like the pharmaceutical industry or the, the, yeah. the government, the cabal. You know, it's, um, it's become something <clears throat> sorry, that people seem to think is working against them a lot of the time. And I think this is because of, like you said, social media and websites popping up and just publishing whatever they want without any consideration of facts. So yes, I hadn't thought about it shifting. Yeah. But you're right, it has. It's yeah. it's the right it's also the need for the right voices to be heard. Yeah. Not just all of them, you yeah. know? Um and then I just I just want to add that then of course it is sort of the the basic of freedom of media has always been and will be, and that is to side on the side of, of the poor, the weak, the mm -hmm. one who have not got a voice and to claim accountability. And, and this is so interesting because we need it. You need it here in Albania, but we need it everywhere. And we need it in Sweden, although we are like top 10 of democracies, we have high trust for our institutions. But we need this because we mm. also have civil servants who, I don't know, slide away and misbehave. And, and that role of mm. media is really important everywhere and every day. Are there, I mean, what are the threats to media freedom like in Sweden? What, is it, do you have, <laughs> I have no idea mm -hmm. what the situation's like there. No, but that's a good question. Um, no, uh, I, it's, it's, I mean, it's no threat. We have such a strong legislation and in our constitution, the freedom of media and uh, also the freedom of expression from individuals who can talk to media mm -hmm. without being punished and, and the access to public information. It's extremely strong. You're not allowed to ask any questions. Why do you want this information? You just hand it out. And if you don't do it in, within a week, uh, you get uh, criticized. Uh, 
uh, by the judicial ombudsman that we have for this. So, and it's really deeply rooted. It's wonderful. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I would say that perhaps um, the threats, uh, it's a really good question, Alice, but the threats are the credibility and the mm -hmm. quality that the Swedish media also needs all the time to think about uh, being credible, being accurate, being correct, being mm -hmm. high, ensure high, high quality because uh, you have this access to all kinds of information. I think it's easy to get sort of sloppy. Especially in, in yeah. the situation you're describing, there's no excuse for um, mistakes because you have access to information. Yeah. I mean, yeah. here the situation is, yeah. I feel when there's things I want to find out, I'm facing this sort of 10 meter high wall stone wall and all the information I want is on the other side and it's very difficult to be able to get the information you need here um, so yeah Sweden sounds like a, a lovely place to work yeah so this this need for more credibility and accuracy how how can this be achieved do you think is it something that the government has to legislate or do you think it's something that has to come from media themselves here talking about yes. Albania I think you definitely need to have a legislation that ensures this right from a media perspective that but but, but Albania actually has uh, uh, access to public mm -hmm. information law uh, so then that needs to be implemented in mm -hmm. a in a in a correct way and uh, I think it's quite good the system we have in Sweden where you have a, a, a body who also ensures that this actually is happening because in Sweden I mean me myself even though we defend freedom of expression every day, I have had colleagues who undeliberately waited not one week but two or maybe three weeks before handing out the information. Mm -hmm. And we immediately got a comment and, and we were criticized and this was yes. it. So I think you need that constantly. I mean, yes. So, so yes, legislation and then of course uh, knowledge and you also need to have decision makers who understand the role of, of media, how important mm -hmm. it is and you cannot undermine uh, um, or investigative journalism, you cannot undermine the role of media, how painful it is to be um, investigated. It's painful for everyone, mm -hmm. uh, but, but that's the way it should be and yes. I think... Uh, through a public official yeah. it's part of the yeah. job yeah and i think it's very important your attitude towards the media that you should mm -hmm. just embrace you know thank you for your question mm -hmm. you know thank you for investigating thank you for for asking these questions you know it's great and uh, yeah i think because when you become a journalist someone interviewed me the other day and asked me um how i feel about sort of threats and pressure as you work as a journalist and i said when you become a journalist you know that that's part of the deal and you accept it and you prepare yourself for it and it's not like oh no you know exactly. obviously it's it's upsetting when it happens but it's the same for public officials yeah. you know you're going to get badgered harassed questions they're going to be combing through every single thing you've ever said or done yeah, it's if you can't the take the heat you no. stay out of the kitchen exactly. as we say in english no but that's absolutely true Absolutely true. And going back to what you said initially, also Alice, about being a journalist, since I grew up and my mother was a correspondent, I I, I could see her working hard and, and mm -hmm. she, she was a foreign correspondent, so her work was very much to travel to other countries and try to understand them and then to transmit that to a Swedish audience. 
but a lot of hard work and also a lot of um, lonely work. You're mm -hmm. quite lonely as a journalist yeah. and you need to be very brave mm -hmm. and uh, determined and I could see that side of, of the profession. Mm -hmm. And of course you need support for doing your job and we know today that a lot of journalists are being killed because yes. the yeah. work is so important and it's such a threat and, uh, and it's, it's really um, a dangerous mm -hmm. job. It is. My mm -hmm. colleague Daphne Carana Galizia, who mm -hmm. I worked with previously, mm -hmm. three years on, we still have no one who has been held accountable. We are pretty sure who did it and who was involved, but still no one behind bars. And I think that sends a very worrying message that this has happened in an EU member state as well. You know, that's a whole different, a whole different topic. So I want to talk about one of my favourite topics to talk about, which is women's rights and feminism. Um, Sweden, as with almost everything else, ranks very highly in terms of its um, um, its women's rights and the attitude towards women, etc. You consider yourself a feminist. The situation in Albania is challenging. Um, unfortunately, we have some of the highest rates in Europe, I think, of domestic violence, over half of women in Albania suffer from one of the forms of domestic violence. Um, the, the arrest rate for the last year was 17.7%. Out of all of the reports that were made, only 17% were actually even arrested, let alone convicted. That's actually decreased significantly from last year. Uh, what's Sweden's approach to dealing with domestic violence in terms of the public, educating the public, and also with law enforcement? Because I want to know how we can learn from this approach. I think that um, I mean the Swedish experience is very much. Uh, first, you have a very strong women's movement, um, mm. but then you also have a male movement, um, mm. a, a, a group of men. In Sweden, it was like that. I mean, we had a really a strong women's movement who were fighting for the women's right to to vote. We celebrate hundred years of that, and then step by step. But we also had men who got engaged. And, um, and, and I actually get extremely upset these days when we fund Sweden as a donor coming into countries, funding shelters, uh, funding, because, because we need to focus on prevention. Yes. It should never happen. Mm -hmm. Yes, we need to have a shelter, but, but our focus should not be to fund a shelter. Mm -hmm. It should be to work on men, on young yes. men, on men, so that this never happens because mm -hmm. it is about inequality uh, in structures, in stereotypes and what we do now, Sweden here in Albania, is to try, not try because we're working actually very fine, is to mobilize and engage men in something mm -hmm. that we also call guy talk, but we've done this also not only this year but earlier, but we're really sort of launching it this year, mobilizing the whole country and that is one thing, to engage the young men. The other thing is to educate uh, the law enforcement, as, as mm -hmm. you were talking about, because it's also a question about attitude. But you know, in Albania you have so many fantastic men actually understanding the problem, mm -hmm. being responsible, wanting to... Because I've been traveling around now to El Pasan yes. and I saw the yeah. Cicerona and I listened to these men and they talk about this, it's not a problem for them. I mean, they are not all men, but they are still representing both young and old men and in, in high up and decision making in society. Uh, and they understand that, that they need to talk about men. So I think, and this is a long term work. We mm -hmm. have to 
and I'm looking in Sweden, I, I could say that uh, perhaps my generation of men are more equal than the younger generation. Mm. And then I was thinking, did we take this for granted? So, so we can never relax, we have to do this. But it's about prevention and working with men. And my final point is that I also get upset when we um, work too much with women because they are not the problem. Mm -hmm. And, and in, in Eastern Europe sometimes when we Soviet Union fell apart you had also an increase of violence and uh, so many organizations focused on women. You know you have to be strong, you have to be empowered but they are strong, they mm -hmm. are empowered, they are highly educated. It's the same in Albania, you have more women in university, mm -hmm. they, you have more women with a high degree university, you need to focus on men. Mm -hmm. But I do think there is something to be said for how women bring up their sons yes. as well. Yes. This is important because I, I think there can be yeah. so much toxicity in yeah. creating a little prince who yeah. gets everything he wants, has yeah. everything done for him, thinks he can order his mother around, is never told no, and if that's allowed, yeah. I think that attitude just grows and then gets projected onto his unfortunate wife when he gets older. Mm -hmm. So I think, of course, it's never the woman's fault, but I think it's important to educate women as well, or, or maybe show them how they might be nurturing something which is quite yeah. toxic in terms of masculinity. Yeah, that is very true, Alice, that is really very, very true. So of course women have a role to play. But when I look around and when I meet with people here, and I don't only meet with privileged, um, high-ranking people, I travel around, I talk to people, young girls and boys, and I must say that I'm also sort of happily, not surprised, but I'm happy because I see so many women who are so good, skilled, strong, mm -hmm. uh, effective, doing the best job. And I also see young men who are interested and who share uh, and who, who, who at least, you know, try to be gender aware. And mm -hmm. when you look around in Albania, you see that as well. You, yes. see, you see it, it's there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and also in high-ranking positions, you have a lot of women who are good, really good and skilled. And that is important. Yes. That is important because they are role models. Uh, so, so as you can hear, it's a combination of things that we need to do. Mm -hmm. But we should definitely not focus on shelters. But it's prevention, it's the men, role model and law enforcement because it is about attitudes when mm -hmm. you have cases of gender-based violence. Yes. I mean, how, what kind of attitude do you have? And then I heard one man saying the other day, and I really liked his comment, and he said, we have a legislation in Albania that we can take care of um, ch uh, women and children if they are, um, uh, if, if they are victims of gender violence or, or violence. Uh, so they can be in a shelter, but that's wrong, he said, because it's actually the men who should move. Why should you yeah. move out the women to, to a quite you know, not yes. nice shelter to be for a couple of days so she's on the run? Mm -hmm. It's him who should be on the yes. run. And uh, I thought that was an excellent comment. Yes. yes, he should be on the run. But it's definitely the right approach. Um, it, it really annoys me when people say that feminism is just about women. I mean, like Feminism is about men just as much because men are i believe can be just as much a victim of the patriarchy of this toxic masculinity than women yes alice you're so right and and exactly like that and we actually had a research made in sweden in the, in development cooperation 
because we were focusing first on women, as I said, and then very much on men, and then should be no surprise, but then research showed that to achieve, you know, true gender equality, you actually have to focus on both. I mean, you cannot mm -hmm. exclude one group or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, sounds so obvious, but, but we needed to do research around that. So yes, you have to. And, uh, and I think men are, of course, victims of stereotypes and yes. prejudice and uh, both to be strong when they don't want to be mm -hmm. strong or not being fathers when they want to be fathers. And we have so many fantastic examples around the world uh, about men being empowered to be the men they want to be, uh, mm -hmm. caring and, and to be fathers uh, who stay Sharing at home. Emotions. Yeah, and who stay home with their children. Mm -hmm. And paternity leave is very important there. And this is something Albania could have a little bit more of paternity yes. leave. My, when I had my daughter, I said to my partner, how much paternity leave do you get? And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, can you ask for some time off? And he said, do you know what my boss will say? Who's having the baby? You or your wife? Exactly. And so that I just is felt a problem. so bad. Mm, that's he an wanted, attitude problem. Yeah, yeah. He, he wanted to stay with us for some time. Mm, yeah. We weren't able to. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's really important. Mm -hmm. And paternity leave. And, and there's now so much research that uh, it improves men's health. WHO mm. made a very interesting research uh, some years ago now. Uh, how men's health were affected or improved when mm -hmm. they stayed home. Uh, and they could even see an increase in, in uh, life expectancy. So it's mm -hmm. quite amazing. And then, of course, just the right to be home with your child. Yes, and equality in, in the labor, in working environment, that if both uh, men and women are at home, then you have the same advancement mm -hmm. and career development mm -hmm. and so on. Let's hope. Okay, now um, my last topic for today, one of my favourite topics, is Albania. What mm -hmm. do you think of Albania? What your um, sort of impressions have been since you came here? You've been here for a year now and you've travelled around a lot, both for work and for fun. What has been your favourite place so far? Mm -hmm. Oh, favourite place. <laughs> I really love Albania. I must say it is such a fantastic combination mm -hmm. of, of generosity and Mediterranean and, and, and beauty. Mm -hmm. I love to be honest, uh, I hope uh, Elion Delia will not be upset with me because I love to travel outside Tirana. Yes. I love Tirana though, <laughs> I really feel comfortable in Tirana. Yes. But, but I actually love to travel outside because you have the mountains. I love the mm -hmm. mountains and I love the sea, you have both. Feth Valbona, I've been yes. there twice now. I, I, I want to go again. I yes. feel I'm addicted to, yes. the, to the hiking. And I like the open hiking, mm -hmm. so that is what maybe my number one favorite place when you stand there, and uh, and then of course the sea and uh, everything. I think it's so extremely beautiful. And then one thing I was thinking about yesterday is that wherever you go in Albania, in the big cities or in the small villages, or in a fancy restaurant or or in mm -hmm. a family place. You always get something extra. It's like you, you order a salad, you get a salad and something extra. You, mm -hmm. you have a dinner and then you have a dessert. It's like Albanians need to give yes. you something extra. Yes. It's I lovely. love that. Yeah, it's really lovely. I came. I mean, I came here as a stranger. I didn't know a soul, but I felt like I everyone knew me. You know, because everyone was so kind and welcoming oh. to me. Like you can be alone here, but not feel alone yeah. because everyone is so kind. Um, and one of my questions was beach or mountains? Yeah. It's a difficult, which one would you choose? The beaches or the mountains? Uh -huh. But you sort of answered that. I think mountains. mountains. Yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. yeah. I like the beach for a day or two. Yeah. 
but I'm so pale. I, I'm not. <laughs> me and the sun is just not a very good combination. Albanian coffee or chai male? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Coffee. Coffee. No, chai male. I'm oh. changing my mind. <laughs> chai male because it's unique. Coffee you it can is. find everywhere, it but is. chai male only and here. Chai male is a cure for everything. Yeah. A bit yeah. like raki yeah. Yeah. as well. <laughs> North or south? And again, you've answered it. You said death. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Um, for me, the north, it's just, um, I'm very interested in the textile traditions and the ethnography, and they have, in my opinion, a, a richer sort of selection. I like the food, the wine is nicer, I think, as well. And yeah, the, the yeah. wild yeah. ruggedness yeah. of the scenery is just, yeah. and I, I found in Theth that I just felt like I was in a completely different world. Yeah. You know, cut off from everywhere yeah. else. I could have been anywhere or nowhere. Yeah. It was a really wonderful experience. And I went to Dibra and on the way to Dibra, it's so beautiful. It's like breathtaking. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ulsa, Barchin, it's fantastic. Oh, it yes. was breathtaking. Yes. So, yeah. Okay, now I'm going to play a small game with you. I'm going to fire some words at you very quickly and you have to say the first thing that comes into your mind. Okay? Yes. <laughs> Coffee. Ah, oh, macchiato. Albania. Um, people friendliness. <laughs> Raki. Oh, I love Raki. <laughs> smile, smile. So, Tirana. Uh, Tirana, Mother Teresa. The Balkans. Oh. <laughs> discussion, heated discussion. Uh, Albanian people. Uh, uh, um, generous, uh, warm. Freedom. Oh, freedom. Demonstrations. Equality. Oh, and men and women. The environment. Oh, um, no waste. Albanian wine. Uh, very good. Yep. Politics. Um, too, too much about nothing. Sieni. Sieni mir, shumir. Bravo. Thank you very much for a lovely interview. Thank you, Alice. Thank Welcome you. back. <laughs>